What is up, folks? Today on the Emulsion Podcast, we chat expensive-ass coffee, hella restaurant reviews, tipping policies, and restaurant investing. Welcome back to the show, folks. My name's Justin Kana. This is episode 36 of The Emulsion. We're live on YouTube right now. If you're awesome enough to be subscribed and have notifications turned on, this is where you start to join us on this world-class live stream of ours. This is where you get to be involved in the conversation and share your thoughts. If you're new here, this is where a lot of, uh, you know, my normal videos on YouTube are all about, you know, doing what I've done in the past. This show is all about what everyone else is doing and what I'm paying attention to. I feel like we haven't given clarity on this on the show in a while. When I was in school, there were these amazing bloggers who were doing, you know, going out to eat and sharing their opinions. And now none of those bloggers that I used to follow that at least that I trusted go out anymore. And, you know, Eater, which is a platform that we admittedly use a lot on this show, brought all of their writing in-house, and I felt like a lot of the news in the industry went into a kind of like a weird place. There were very, very few contrary opinions. It was like these guys on these high horses telling us what to think. So this show is me not only being that resource that I never had in culinary school, but it's a place to come not only to get your news, but kind of it's a safe space to come and ask questions, you know, if you will. There are no stupid questions here on the show. I want I want the comment section to become a place where you folks chat and, you know, you use my profile my very small profile, as a platform more than anything. But I hope you can learn a thing or two so you don't become a robot going into your career. I, I, I don't want you to agree with what I have to say. I want you to kind of have your own opinion, and I want you to have all the information to make that opinion. So that's my rant over with. So if you're not on YouTube or you're listening on this after the live stream, go ahead and tweet at me if you aren't listening live and you want to share your thoughts. I am Justin underscore Kana on Twitter, and go ahead and hashtag the emulsion so I can find you. Today's beverage is some good old-fashioned OJ. I had my coffee this morning, and, um, you know, I'm just feeling a little bit... This is just, uh, I think this is Simply Orange. Just really, my, my girlfriend has these tiny, tiny little orange juice glasses. It feels like it's halfway done, but I've only taken, like, two sips, so that's kind of annoying. But we're going to use that to get me through today, and I'll probably have another cup of coffee after this uh, after this show is over. So let's get right into this week's stories. The first little quickie story is out of a restaurant we covered a lot over the past few weeks. 11 Madison Park, the, you probably saw the headlines rotating around the internet, not just from, again, this is one of those stories that wasn't just from our little foodie restaurant circle. The the the, the platform that I used to cover it is actually Thrillist, and they do a bunch of other stuff in addition to the restaurant stuff. But 11 Madison Park apparently serves a $24 cup of coffee. That's a headline. So there's a lot more to it, and I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into it on this show. I have another rant coming on. It, it's not, you know, it's, I'm not perfect, right? I'm just a one-man show, and I don't claim to be perfect in any capacity. But the emulsion for me is kind of like a side hustle, right? It's something that I want to do for you folks. I don't make any money on this show. I do it because I genuinely enjoy it. I like getting on this show and talking and interacting with you folks. But when I literally, I... Me, this one person, can literally be the better researched person in, in this whole entire equation when it comes to researching stories and I compare myself to, like, food and wine. That's a little bit frustrating. Uh, so, yeah, I... I Wall Street Journal is the people who put this article up, and they put a subscription wall up, so you can't read the whole article unless you sign up for this whole thing, and Food and Wine literally wrote a piece on this entire article, and 
didn't say any like they didn't go past the paywall they just stayed where they were and then that's what they used to get clicks on the headline which then led to them basically ending the article talking about a $25,000 taco and this is what I went with my rant at the beginning of the show you folks get such spotty coverage on stories so I want to make sure that you get as quality news as possible and that's why I hope you would subscribe and then come back to my show next week Okay, rant over. So this lovely c- coffee, this lovely coffee that uh, 11 Madison Park serves is a Colombian coffee, and it's called Whoosh Whoosh. And why is it so rare? It is a low yield, so it's rare in that sense, but it's also apparently an Ethiopian varietal that got brought to Colombia, and it's now only grown by a few families down there. So 11 Madison Park sources this coffee, brings it into New York, and I mean, it would be great to have that on that sh- on th- that as the beverage on 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 the Emulsion Podcast hashtag Beverage Goals. But so for some more numbers, they were right with the the twenty four dollar cup of coffee. All these headlines, but you have to buy two. So Eleven Madison Park charges forty eight dollars for a two cup portion at just ten ounces each. So they have a full time coffee director on staff. So this was just you know smart on their part to offer kind of a premium option. Not only does this hopefully help with this lady's salary, but you know the marketing does itself with headlines like this because it just increases the fact that 11 Madison Park is in in the news again. So plus, as a consumer, it's great to know that you can go into a space like 11 Madison Park and then order this and hang out in their amazing new dining room or at least, you know, in their, their bar area. I know when I was at Per Se, they had the salon section, which was an option where you could kind of come into the space without ordering the full blown out tasting menu. You can get a drink and have some a la carte stuff. It was also insanely expensive. I think some of the a la carte dishes were like $30 a piece, but you're paying for so much more than the dish in front of you. So Maya, who is the name of the coffee director there, she uses a high-end coffee dripper to make this happen, and apparently the 10-minute brewing process yields a coffee with a, quote, creamy texture that reminds me of dough or yogurt, end quote. So this got the typical reactions from everyone outside of the foodie sphere, from everyone comparing this to the dollar coffees you get at a bodega just down the street. However, one commentary stuck out to me, and this is actually the first time I saw this headline, was through this gentleman, Francisco Megoya who is the lead chef at Modernist Cuisine, tweeted this story out, commenting on the fact that people are willing to pay for this, this $24 cup of coffee, but when a loaf of bread costs more than $5, everybody freaks out. So there's literally just as much, or if not more, work that went into that bread, so why not? It should be accepted as such, if that makes sense. I'm in the firm camp that you should be educated, right? Especially in our little kind of corner of the industry. How can you, as a chef, kind of price out a tasting menu if you don't know what it's worth, right? Like we know, we know how much the ingredients cost, but taking a step further than that, how can you, you know, I'm sure that there's so much, there's an aspect of sitting there and getting educated about coffee and watching her spend 10 minutes on your, your, your $48 order of coffee goes into that price tag, right? How can, like, going out to eat, to me, is just as valuable as your kitchen experience, right? You, it, you should get the truffle option, right? Even if you, like, if you can afford it, don't go into debt, taking my advice right now, but start your meal with champagne, right? The next, the next meal, start it with Cremant Alsace, right? And then the next meal after that, start it with like a weird, funky, sparkling Jura wine, right? It's how you learn and develop your own palate. I've had insanely good coffee, but not for $24, but to, just to kind of sit for an afternoon and get access to 
to 11 Madison Park, you know, like you can have the staff come over and talk to you. I'd pay $24 for that. Like this is my inner hustler coming out. But if you haven't seen my stagiaire email uh, video, you should definitely watch that. You could literally probably make friends with Maya, the coffee director for $48. And that could potentially get you a job at the hottest restaurant in the country. You know, regardless, or you could say, yep, I'm using whoosh whoosh coffee exclusively for the rest of my life if you have this experience, or be like, no, this coffee sucks because X, Y, Z, but you should just be educated. You'll never, you're never, ever, ever hear me talk or hype up or talk shit on stuff on this show unless I've tried it for specifically that reason. I've been, you know, stupidly impressed at things that I thought were just kind of average, and I've been really disappointed in things that I thought were, you know, next level, next level stuff. So that's just my opinion that, that that's, you know, where I'm at on this story. Quality is subjective. So remember that. Next up, transitioning into a little bit of a businessy story. There's, there's actually a lot of businessy stories that we're going to cover on the show today. This should be called the business episode. But uh, Carla Hall, who got her fame on Top Chef and is also a host on an American TV show called The Chew, proved that TB fame doesn't always translate into butts in seats in restaurants. So her Brooklyn-based Southern Kitchen restaurant shut down after just a year of being open, and Eater did an article all about the six things that she's not going to do to make her next, next restaurant opening a success. Basically, the things that she learned from her first restaurant failure. And I really, really didn't think I was going to enjoy this article, but diving deep into it, there's a ton of takeaways that I want to kind of share with you guys. So thing one, is something we've all, we've already talked about. Fame doesn't guarantee success. 20 million people watched The Chew, but she literally couldn't plug the restaurant on that show. So what was interesting to me from this point was that ABC also limited her social media presence. She could literally not shout out her restaurant on her own social media, which is crazy to me, right? So the other point that they made uh, relating to the fame, which it, which I had no idea about, was that she did a Kickstarter for this restaurant. So she was asking for $250,000, and, and the campaign got a ton of flack from the internet. People saying that, you know, she should just take out a loan just like the rest of us, and that she was taking advantage of her fan base to try to, like, get them to pay her money that she was already making, you know, so that if you're making millions of dollars doing TV, how come you don't have $250,000 to fork over for your own restaurant? which is a little bit crazy. If a network, you know, kind of, um, it was, it was weird. It was weird. So if she credits that decision as one of the reasons that the funding the restaurant was such a flop for her. So to this point, I can't help think that there was just, you know, poor decisions on, on Carla's part. It's, it's, it's frustrating to see it. Why in the world in 2017, would you ever sign an agreement that limits you to what you can say on social media? It is literally the platform that runs so many of our lives, and it has such power. And the second that you give away that control, you pigeonhole yourself. And that was frustrating. That that's frustrating to see from someone who has, I would argue, so much experience in the entire sphere of being on TV. Even if it's for short-term financial or exposure gains, it's going to bite you back hard if your ambitions map to having a restaurant and you can't promote that restaurant. It's crazy to me. So. I don't know, it, like, if a network approached me and asked me to sponsor the emulsion, but they said that I couldn't talk about the dinners that I'd been doing, I'd be like, fuck that. 
Zero chance I'm doing that. I'm confused, though, because it seems to be only business-related, these kind of, like, stifles that they put on, on, on these hosts' social media accounts. So if you look at Mario Batali, who's also a host on, on, on The Chew, his Twitter, he goes off on politics all the time, like using profanity and calling out people on Twitter. So AB, a, ABC doesn't seem to care about that, which is a little bit confusing for me. The other confusing point is that she did a Kickstarter two years before the restaurant opened. Now, that's, of course, not entirely her fault. You know, the the restaurants get delayed all the time, but it seems like the entire plan for this whole Kickstarter thing wasn't properly thought through. Apparently, $10, if you donated $10, that got you a ton of swag for supporting the restaurant, which is like cookie things and like stickers and like a, basically a goodie bag worth of stuff from Carla Hall just for 10 bucks and that was definitely way too much for that little financial gain for the for the Kickstarter you would literally spend all of those $10 through the logistics and the cost of basically giving people that reward so they 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 came up with no profit on it which is a little bit weird to see Number two on the list is location, 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 saying that they left Manhattan for Brooklyn because of lower rent prices in Brooklyn, but the space that they chose was a 15-minute walk away from the subway, and that doesn't translate to a lot of foot traffic during the winter, apparently. Another funny point in the article, this is so funny, so it says, Quote, thanks to her fame, plus good public relations and social media management, Hall had 150,000 Facebook followers by the time her restaurant opened, but that didn't translate into diners flocking to the restaurant. She says, quote, my restaurants were from, my, my followers for, were from all over the country, so I was not able to capitalize on those numbers in our location in Brooklyn, end quote. Lols. Good public relations and social media management? Like, are you kidding? That's literally the worst sentence to preface that statement ever. How about, unfortunately, due to poor public relations and social media management, blah, 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 blah. (sighs) But yeah, it's fine, because Carla can't also give any shout-outs because she's under contract by ABC. It's so crazy to me. I, I don't understand it. But I know it's easy for me to sit here in my chair and talk shit on all these things because I'm not doing it, but you know, I'm up on a high horse, but I'm aware that I'm not get I'm that I'm just getting started myself, right? But I want to hammer these points home for you folks because it's stuff again, this show is what I'm paying attention to. I don't want you to make the same mistakes. I want to cover these stories, I want to talk about these points because I don't want you to have the same thing happen to you. It's easy for Carla Hall to lose a restaurant and then bounce right back because she has a multi-million dollar contract with a TV gig. But if you put all these practices into place and you blunder and you're like me and you don't have any other source of income, it's really, really hard to bounce back from that. So this show exists so that you hear these stories and then learn from what's happening in the industry, right? 10 years ago, you didn't have to worry about a company telling you what to post on social media. But at the same time, now there's huge upside to getting a good social media manager who knows how to properly target advertisements and understands the market and all of that. I'm currently in the process of hiring someone to do that for mixed projects myself, so I'm super keen on covering stuff like this because it's important. I really, really do think it's important. Point three that the article makes, remember there's six, they say there's, quote, no such thing as enough time, quote, end quote. But I'm rewriting it to say, quote, don't spread yourself too thin, end quote. And this is a classic case of the chef not being able to be at the restaurant. So she's got TV and she's got cookbook signings and cooking demos and her own life to deal with. Opening a traditional restaurant requires a ton of commitment, and to undertake a project like that without putting one of the balls you're kind of like juggling down and letting it come to rest is a recipe for disaster. 
Point number four, branding isn't everything. Another classic problem, they stressed so hard on the logo and the wallpaper and the brand image of the restaurant without focusing on their guests and the food itself, and that's their product, right? Essentially, it's it's super cliche to say, but watching the like counting the chickens before they hatch, that essentially happened with this restaurant. Saying they were planning on the brand becoming a future chain before even working on the present restaurant. That's crazy, right? But I know how it feels to create a logo before focusing on the product, and I've learned so hard from those mistakes. That's why Mixed Projects doesn't have a logo yet, and that's why I'm 100% fine with that. I literally spent all night last night working on this plaid pasta dish we're trying on this dinner that we're doing tomorrow. And yesterday morning, I created an email funnel for the website so that people can more easily make reservations. That's not as fun as ordering business cards, but it's what makes or breaks places, right? It's so funny because this is such a great advice. I'm spending so long on this article because I want you to remember this episode. When you're going to start something someday, I want you to come back to episode 36 of the Emulsion Podcast and listen to all this advice for yourself to make sure that you're on the right track and that you don't make these same mistakes. I know what it's like to work on a logo before your product is ready. That stuff is fun, right? Branding is fun. Marketing is fun. You know what's not fun? putting yourself on a plate. That creates vulnerability, and vulnerability isn't fun. As humans, we don't like that. So right off the bat, huge props to Carla for coming forward with all of this. It's definitely not easy to admit all these mistakes. Point number five, staffing is incredibly important. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. This industry is about people. It's not, you know, there's not much more to say there. She overstaffed low-quality people, and that created problems. Classic. So last up, experience counts. That's their last and sixth final point. <laughs> Savage line, and the truth hurts, but the article says, quote, Hall is a talented chef who proved she had serious cooking chops on Top Chef and ran a successful catering business. But culinary know-how doesn't mean she knew how to operate a restaurant, end quote. So with all these lessons learned, she's going to give it another crack, saying, quote, I will be back harder, better, faster, tastier, and stronger, end quote. Like, get it girl like I'm that's all that's super badass and if you want it you're gonna get it I, I have no doubt that she's gonna continue to succeed going forward Next up, I want to talk about Esquire's list of best new restaurants in America of 2017 and because it's an interesting roundup of restaurants not because I'm particularly interested in the restaurants that are covered but it starts off with the first paragraph saying quote remember restaurants the ones you kept going back to? Not the places where you have to wait for three hours until someone texts you. Not the place where you drop in once, shave off a lump off your retirement savings, and endure five hours of high-concept origami so that you can brag about your accomplishment on Instagram while you make a beeline for Popeyes because you're still hungry. No, not those. End quote. So the author, author uh, Jeff Gordonier, also tips his hat to places like Aska and Oriole and Singlethread, saying, quote, As much as we admire them, they're not on this list. Too often, despite ex exquisite standards, the tasting menu format fails to deliver on simple pleasures, end quote. So again, I'm not going to cover any of the restaurants that are listed. If you're interested in that, that is linked in the show notes. So go ahead and read that if you're interested in creeping on the places. But I wanted to cover the article because of this point. Can you create a feeling that he's talking about in his description at a tasting menu spot? Can you take this customer feedback, these this thing that, like, every single, when I read that, I guarantee a certain percentage of you felt something, right? Like, you were like, oh yeah, that's true. Like, I don't regular spots anymore because there aren't that many, you know, because the places, especially on the high end, kind of have lost that aspect to them. It's a look at me f cooking thing, 
Popeyes, uh, to answer that question, Popeyes is a uh, fried chicken spot here in the U.S. So the idea being you go have this amazing five-hour experience, but you're still hungry, so you have to go to Popeyes and get fried chicken on your way home. So how can you take this consumer feedback and use it to your advantage? That's the only thing I want to ask on this article. On to the next one. So Thomas Keller is in the news this week, and this is another restaurant closing story that was insane for me to hear. I literally didn't believe it when I saw it, but knowing the weight of the trio of these restaurants, the bakery, the bistro, and the bar, Bouchon Beverly Hills is closing. So uh, multiple, apparently a multitude of financial issues with the city of Beverly Hills is the, the cause for this this whole entire fiasco. I mean, I call it a fiasco, but it's literally just a restaurant closing, paying for parking, um, rising rent prices, a bunch of other Sydney ordinances that have come in the way, created a hugely challenging business landscape for the restaurants. So AKA their costs were too high for the revenue that they were driving. And unfortunately they have to close. So it's super sad to hear, but we've seen this before in New York City. Costs are just getting too steep for restaurants to keep up. And it's a super unfortunate reality. Me, myself, I've never been to L.A., but during the time that I worked in the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group, I know how huge that ecosystem was down there with Bouchon, so it's super unfortunate to hear. Um, Hopefully, they'll have better luck in New York City with the Tack Room, their new kind of steakhouse concept in Hudson Yards that we've covered a few weeks ago on this show, Um, but I had to cover it. It was just unfortunate to hear. Um, Something to pay attention to, uh, again... It's such a give and take. It's so funny because we talk about these places that are in prime locations like Beverly Hills in LA that have really, really high steep rent prices that are causing restaurants to close. And then we're also on the flip side talking about Carla Hall saying, okay, we're not going to do the high rent place. We're going to go to this other place that's a little bit out of the way, but it's cheaper rent. And because there's no foot traffic, the restaurant doesn't have enough butts and seats. And so they have to close. It's such a frustrating landscape to be in right now. But it happens to the best. It literally happens to the best. So I hope that is a takeaway from you from this story. Next up, and a story from you folks, Sebastian asked to have this story covered all about, quote, TripAdvisor's Traveler's Choice List of Best Fine Dining Restaurants, end quote. So let's get into it. Uh, first is to kind of something, uh, an approach that I take with all kind of listicles or best, quote unquote, uh, articles that come out. And that's what I want to know is who has a say? And what are the qualifications? And as someone who researches these kinds of things a lot, if you're ever curious as to how these things work, go ahead and search the name of the award and then the word press release. So if you want to write Michelin 2018 something, then say press release afterwards, and you'll get kind of a little bit more info to it than what the article gives. Consumers don't care about how how it got called number one. They just want to say that they went to the number one place, right? We care on this show. And so it says, quote, award winners were determined using an algorithm that took into account the quantity and the quality for the reviews of restaurants all over the world within that category gathered over a 12-month period. Oh, the algorithm, end quote. So with that, right off the bat, uh, this makes an interesting list because this is one of the few lists of the ones that, you know, we will cover or pay attention to that actually combines technology with human reviews, right? The winner of this entire thing is Black Swan at Oldstead in the UK. I checked on their profile. They have over 800 reviews on TripAdvisor. But then if you look at the number two restaurant in the UK, well, the number two restaurant on the list, it's also in the UK, uh, Belmond Le Manoir au Quatre Saisons, they have 2,000 
over 2,000 reviews. I think it's like 2,300 plus reviews. So there's no doubt an aspect of timing that kind of goes into the algorithm because if you're a new restaurant, you'll probably have fewer reviews than the restaurant that's been around for five years. So there's no doubt that the algorithm has some sort of that, the timing aspect that goes into it. Um, but what's similar with all of these lists is that us chefs swoon over them and strive to kind of like get on them. But at its most basic level, it's marketing, right? They are trying to use us, these companies, to market themselves. And we buy into it and we just fuel this unnecessary dick measuring contest. Fuck, I'm super ranty today. But seriously, guys, I'm in a really, really good mood. Nothing's wrong. I just think that the system is super corrupt and no one's talking about it. So I'm just here in my little corner of the internet giving my two cents. But, you know, Michelin started it and then San Pellegrino did it and TripAdvisor does it now. And, you know, all they want is more tires and more water and more reservations for hotels. That's what these companies want. And they use these very, very clickable lists to get it. And when we get on it, then we share it because we're so proud of it. And then they just get more traffic. It's just super, super, super smart marketing. And we're just the 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 sheep that go along with it. So my advice, don't lose sleep over it. Would you give your friend, if you had a friend who was in the headphone business, would you give your friend flack if, or if she's a rapper, right? If your friend is a rapper, would you give your friend flack if Beats Headphones came out with a list of the best rappers in the game and she didn't get on it? Probably not, right? Because you're just like, yo, they just want to sell more headphones, right? But we get all up in arms about internet travel companies and bottled water companies releasing these lists. I just think our our, our, our energy is better spent channeling guest experiences and focusing on the staff and making for sure the food is more sustainable, instead of kind of like striving for and promoting and hyping up all these lists. So in advance, I'm sorry if you wanted the full list. It's linked if you want to check it out uh, for the full rundown, but that's all I have to say on this story. I'm, I'm, I'm still in a good mood, I promise. I'm not in a bad mood. I'm just, <laughs> this whole entire show today is just, it, it should be called the corrupt episode because it just shows all the flaws that are in this entire industry. And I just want to talk about it. So that's that's where I'm at. A little sip of orange juice to calm me down. So next up are two really, really interesting stories all about restaurant economics. The first, coming from Danny Meyer's Union Square Hospitality Group, the, I mean, I would argue pioneer in the no-tipping model for restaurants. He probably wasn't the first. He definitely wasn't the first. But he was the one that garnered all the media attention and the one that kind of like came out as a voice for sustainably doing it, not just financially, but HR wise. Uh, but the second story is from the New Yorker talking all about a gentleman who invested in a restaurant and comes at the whole entire experience of investing in a restaurant from the investor's perspective. So let's start with the first story. So I'm sure we all remember these headlines. The, the, we, we even remotely covered it here on the show, but that was way back in the day when this wasn't even the emulsion. That was just me on Facebook Live talking about the news. So no tipping was supposed to be more fair, right? Security for the staff, less hassle for the customer, but it's apparently causing problems in the Union Square Hospitality Group now. Salaries went from 60000 a year to 50000 a year. Morale has gone down because there's less hustle and because business is just down. Business is down in, in, in the restaurants. So it's difficult when the revenue sharing model doesn't work as planned, right? The idea being 
if we create busier restaurants and create revenue sharing systems for the staff, they make more money because the restaurant makes more money. And to me, this is just sad because I currently operate on that premise. Me and my other chef, Hubert, and I do a revenue sharing system when we do our dinners. And it works great because there's an incentive for him to drive more sales to the entire thing, right? But I peeled back the layers a bit and it showed a kind of crucial element to the industry that kind of went unnoticed until this no tipping model kind of exposed it. And this is a, a, a huge umbrella stereotype, so I'm not putting anyone in any sort of boxes, but to me, it highlights a deeper issue, so I'm going to cover it. The model, the revenue sharing model, was supposed to give more equal pay between the front of house and the back of house, but with less pay, servers are less motivated, right? So service jobs are notoriously good as kind of part-time, high-paying, personable jobs. So if you can talk to people and you have a able set of legs, you can check enough boxes so you can get these kind of traditionally higher paying jobs. You know, it's you would make more money in X number of hours working at a restaurant than you would working at retail for kind of like that part-time gig. But when you take that high pay aspect away, right? Because if all the money isn't going to the front of the house, some of it's going to the back of the house. If you aren't insanely passionate about serving in a restaurant, it's really really hard to justify taking a job like that. And just there there's aren't that many people that are in that boat. It's a very, very selfless position. Not a lot of room for growth. There's not a lot of credit that gets given, right? So like if you were providing, I would argue, more than 50% of the experience towards the guest, everybody nobody wants to know about you. They want to know about the chef or the owner or who owns the place. So it's a very, very like I said, it's a very, very selfless position. Uh, and it's totally understandable why people are leaving after this change. Cooks are less prone to leaving with lower pay because we're all about the craft, right? We want to work our way up, all of that. The front of house, once you get to literally serving, there's little room to grow after that, right? You get taken off the floor and into a manage management position. But then when you have something like Union Square Hospitality Group, I would assume that there's veterans there and all of those jobs are already taken, right? The management style positions. So it'll be interesting to see where this model gets the restaurant group, if there's going to be restructuring or price increases or et cetera. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see about it, what happens. But the second story uh, about all of this, which is a story that makes me feel like a broken record, is, again, all about a gentleman who owned 142nd of a restaurant in New York City. And you should read it. It's a really, really well-written article. It's a guy who's an investor as well as a writer. So it's very, very well-written. Um, my friend Bonjwing got in a little bit of a, a Twitter conversation with the critic for the New York Times, Pete Wells. And they were kind of giving their own commentary on this article. Uh, again, on Twitter, you can go ahead and check that out if you're interested. But it's a classic case of investing because you want to say you own a restaurant, but then seeing how the economics work out and seeing that, oh shit, restaurants are crazy, crazy commitments as far as work goes. So the article references that saying $100 in revenue yields $2.80 in profit, which is literally less than the credit card processing fees that the restaurant has to pay which I think is crazy, right? It's hilariously depressing. So the solution, uh, some advice this investor got was, quote, you can make money in this business, but not if you're honest, end quote. So, you know, after getting a little bit more advice, the, uh, 
you know, uh, the, the, the author of this article got a little bit more advice about celebrity chefs helping drive butts in seats, which is a myth that we literally just busted earlier in the show with the Carla Hall thing. The author says, quote, all that makes sense, even if it was a bit like, uh, even if it was a bit like an NBA coach telling an aspiring one to win, son, just hire LeBron James, end quote. It's not that easy. He continues to say, and this is kind of the longest paragraph from the article that I wanted to read, but it hammers a really, really important point home. He says, quote, yet I've come to conclude that the restaurants in New York needs are all doomed financially to fail. That's because amateur capital backed by magical thinking and a desire for fun distorts the economics for everyone. New restaurants with too easy access to financing from people like me invest too much in design, tableware, food, and service, driving up every customer's expectations of every restaurant in a cyclone of unprofitability. Landlords with enough dreamers to fill their spaces can command nightmare rents. If restaurants had to be good business ideas and attract sophisticated investors who mercilessly demanded a profit, there would be fewer restaurants, they would be less cool, the food would be less good, end quote. And to close out this story, I don't want to dissuade you from any of you, you know, going for it and opening a restaurant. Just I just know that if you want to do that, you're going to run into these questions from your investors, right? Like, what is the profit margin going to look like on my investment? You should be prepared for these harsh truths. You can have an insanely accessible place and make a living salary and have happy people, but you can't always promise huge profits, especially to the people that funded your restaurants, and they're going to want returns on their investments. So it's just something that I want you guys to be aware of and something I want you guys to pay attention to. What are your thoughts here on the entire kind of restaurant economics that we've covered in this entire thing? Does it freak you out? Uh, what What do you think the restaurant model needs to do to succeed? Uh, I mean, I think we're all smart. We can do it. But there needs to be some sort of a conversation about it because it's, it just happens time and time again on this show. And it's something that I'm fascinated in and something that I will continue to cover because this might be your first show. This might be your last show. I want you to come away with that information. And if I keep hammering it home, you guys are going to start to think about restaurants in a different way. Next up is a story you've probably been waiting for me to cover on the show. Chicago's Michelin Guide dropped, and there's some interesting points I want to make. I won't, again, I won't go through all of the restaurants, so to be fully respective of your time, but go ahead and click through the show notes if you want that. An interesting stat of the breakdown of stars by city is New York has 77 stars, San Francisco has 54 stars, and Chicago just has 25 stars. And what's up with that? So Elske and Entente, Entente, yeah. Both got one star this year. Uh, there are no new three-star restaurants in Chicago, but Smith, the place that I actually went for my birthday last year, went from one star to two stars, something I think uh, perceived by my meal there is entirely well-deserved. Uh, great staff over there and great food to boot, so that was definitely well-deserved. I was psyched to see that. Uh, a restaurant called Longman and Eagle, which I also went to eat at when I was living in Chicago, went from one star to Bib Gourmand, so they lost their star. Uh, but that's more or less all I have to say about this release. I'm trying to kind of slim down these lists and award segments. If you want to dive deeper into it or see a little bit more, um, not just because I'd get exhausted from reviewing them in detail, because but because there are underlying points that I think are more important uh, that I can bring to you rather than just kind of reading the articles for you. And I hope that's all right with you. So last up, uh, and this week's non-industry story is actually a piece of gear I picked up this week that is in the mail. It's not quite here yet, but I'm insanely excited to come in the mail. Peak Design, the company that makes the backpack that I carry around almost every single day. Here, I'm going to grab it for you. 
That's this backpack. You've probably seen it in any of my uh, travel gear videos. They came out with one that's all black and I was crazy stoked for it, so I couldn't say no. I posted my the, the current one that I have here on eBay, and it's already selling for enough so that I don't have to pay that much for my new one. Uh, I backed this project on Kickstarter, and it, it was something that I was insanely excited to get, and I use it every single day, and I'm 100% sure that I'm gonna continue to love it even more now that it's coming murdered out in black on black on black, so I'm super pumped for that. Uh, if you take photos, or even if you just like organized carrying on your commute, I highly, highly recommend you check out Peak Design. They have a lot of great stuff, plus they're based in San Francisco, so that's kind of, you know, hashtag best coast in the house. With that, this has been episode 36 of The Emulsion. Thank you so much for listening. Just a quick little reminder before you take off. If you want to support this or any of the other content I do for as little as $1 per month, that's like less than a pack of gum, I'd love for you to check out my page on Patreon. There's a ton of awesome stuff happening over there over the next month. We have our first live stream coming up over there where I get to answer all of your guys' questions, which I'm super pumped to do. Um, there's always a ton of amazing access and behind the scenes and gear giveaways and industry advice and cookbook reviews and so much more again for just $1 a month. That's literally $12 a year. I'd sincerely appreciate your support. And for everyone listening, that's already supporting. I can't thank you guys enough. You guys make it possible. If you can't swing the Patreon right now, but still want to support what I do, I'm in the process of building a super badass, exciting value dropping email newsletter for you guys. If you want to join in, go ahead and check out my website, justinconna.com and we'll get you all set up to be on that list. If you have stories you want covered in next week's show, go ahead and shoot them over to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find you. Subscribe if you aren't already. Definitely leave a thumbs up on this video if you enjoyed it, or consider leaving a review on iTunes if you are listening to just my voice. Regardless of where you are, I really, really appreciate your ears, so thank you so much. My name's Justin Kana. Have a good one. <laughs>